we're going to be talking today kind of about time in the Bible, um, and specifically looking at the Jewish calendar and seeing kind of how that developed. Um, And then we'll make a quick connection between that and the Christian calendar or the church calendar, but that will be the primary focus of next week. Uh, And next week, Pastor Glenn will be in to teach that section of of this course. Uh, So let's go ahead and start in prayer, uh, and then we'll go from there. Gracious Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we are grateful for the chance to gather together in a room and study, to talk and to learn together. And we ask that uh, as we gather, that your Spirit would be working amongst us, uh, helping us to understand uh, and transforming our hearts and lives into the image and likeness of Jesus. Uh, We want um, to see you continue to work in us. Uh, your good and perfect will that we might live in right relationship with you and with others. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we kind of dive in and start talking, what I want to do is kind of just a quick discussion around the room and having a quick conversation about the different ways that we organize our lives. How do we organize our own schedules? Uh, And particularly thinking about what calendar in your life has the biggest impact on your life. Uh, When you think about a year, what year do you think about? Some people think about a fiscal year. Some people think about a school year. Some people think about a Gregorian calendar kind of year, like January to December. Other people think in terms of seasons. You know, they have like, oh, I winter here and I summer here. Um, We have all these different ways of kind of thinking about time and ways that time impacts our own personal schedules. Uh, so just take a minute and find a couple people around you, introduce yourselves, and just say, hey, hey, when I think about a calendar, this is my primary sort of lens that I think about calendars through. So it'll take about three to five minutes and do that. Introduce yourself to someone and talk about how you think about calendars. All right, I'll give you another minute or two to finish up that conversation. All right. So as we we think about this concept of time, what I want to talk about is just time in general a little bit as as we get started. It's really interesting because if you you look kind of throughout a bunch of literature, you'll find all sorts of questions and conversations about time. Uh, In his book, Confessions, uh, the fourth century Christian scholar or author named Augustine actually poses the question, what is time? And raises that, and he goes on and he recognizes that in some sense, we all know what it is, but we don't actually fully comprehend it, and we're not sure exactly how to explain it. That there's all these various dimensions and ways that we can think about time and talk about time. Time is both something that we're really familiar with, but also something we may not fully comprehend and understand. It's kind of a little bit of a paradox in that light, and I think this is reflected in how we talk about time. If you think about the way we talk about time in our general lives, we talk about it in really, really unique and interesting ways. We talk about time at sometimes like it's a person. Time is either our friend, it's on our side, or it's our enemy. And we can say something like time is against us. Uh, time can be the cruelest teacher, uh, or it can also be a doctor and heal all of our wounds. Time can be our servant. We can manage it or make it work to our advantage. Or time can be our master and we can serve time. We have these ways of talking about it like it's a person. We have other ways we talk about time like it's moral. It's a good time or it's a bad time. 
Sometimes we talk like it's mystical. It's the right time or the wrong time for something. We talk about time probably more often than anything else, like it's a commodity or a resource. We can spend time, borrow time, or buy time. We can lose time or find time. We can burn time, waste time, kill time. We either have too much time on our hands or not enough time. Uh, and this all matters because time is money. And we think about it in, in those ways. For most of us, time flies. But of course, for the righteous brothers, time goes by so slowly. Uh, and it can do so much. Uh, for Douglas Adams, if you're familiar with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, time is an illusion. Uh, but for Henry David Thoreau, time is but a stream he goes efficient in. <laughs> like we have these really unique ways. For Dylan, the times are a changing. Uh, but for the birds and the writer of Ecclesiastes, there's a time and a season for everything. We have the, all of these different ways that we talk about it. But we know kind of at a very core that time is essential for the human experience. That marking and keeping time is a fundamental building block of life. That we all have ways of constructing life in, the, in relationship to time. So time is naturally shaped into specific units like days and months and seasons and years. However, we observe and organize these units in really, really different ways. Uh, for example, in our culture, we, many of us follow the... Like we, as a culture, we follow the Gregorian calendar, this January to December kind of thing. But as we talked, we probably saw that many of our lives are actually more impacted by other calendars, whether it's an academic year or a fiscal year or an agricultural year, seasons of planting and harvesting, um, or things like tax season or flu season. Some of those, depending upon the industry that we work in, can have a greater impact on our rhythms of life than even the January to December sort of idea. But because of that enormous influence that time has, most religious traditions, including Christianity, have their own way of thinking about and marking time. That there's this really unique connection between most religions and how they view and how they mark time. And it impacts really probably more than anything that tradition's worship that oftentimes our patterns of worship are deeply connected to how we think about time, how we mark time, and how we keep time as people. So as Christians, the way that we view and keep time, we believe it's just been distinctively marked by God, has been revealed within the scriptures. So we think about some of these basic concepts for us in time. We say that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. That's how our whole story begins. And on the first day, God says, let there be lights. And instantly there's light. And then God separates the light from the darkness and he calls the light light. And the darkness he calls darkness. Um, it, it, we should say he, goes, he calls the light what? Day. And then darkness he calls night. So in the first day we can see more than anything God creates time. But that's really what gets set up in that first day. He doesn't call light light and darkness darkness. He calls them day and night. And on the fourth day, which if you think about the creation event, day one always par parallels day four, day two, and day five parallel one another, day three, and day six. So on the fourth day, which parallels the first, God says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. 
So we see that God creates the sun and the moon and the stars, including the appointed time for assembly or a festival. That, that really becomes their primary purpose, at first of all, is to mark time. And then secondly, he says, and to give light on the earth. There's this very unique connection between God creating time in day one. But we also believe that God acts in time. Not only did he create it, but he actually acts within it. So he has made himself known through or to particular people, through particular events, in particular places, at particular times in history. And we believe that our God acts in time. So we believe that he appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, that he delivered Israel from Egypt, that he made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, that he dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle and the temple, that he brought them back to the land uh, that he had promised Abraham, that he rescued them from their oppressors. He appointed kings and spoke through prophets. And when they were exiled, he brought them back to the land. And ultimately, he comes in the person of Jesus and acts in time. So we see that aspect. And we can even go so far then to say God only not, not only acts in time, but actually inhabits time. Then the fullness of time, God inhabits time. The boundless and timeless Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, actually entered space and time. He entered into this life of ours. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the Son of God, through whom all things were made, came into the world, came into the world that he made, came into space and time to redeem, restore, and renew everything that he had made through his life, death, and resurrection. So God creates time. He acts in time. In Jesus, he inhabited time um, and continues to act within and through time in his spirit. And then finally, the thing that we see is God also consecrates time that he sets aside specific times for special purposes. That there is a consecration of time that we see in the scriptures. It happens, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1. That on the seventh day, it's actually in Genesis chapter 2, because of the way that the chapter break happens. But on the seventh day of creation, we see that God rests. He takes his place as king over his creation, or he fills his temple. And then we see that God blessed the seventh day and made it what? made it holy. So he took a day and he made it holy. He consecrated, he set aside for a specific and special purpose because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So the seventh day, which in the Jewish world begins at sundown on Friday and ends at sundown on Saturday, is subsequently from that went on called the Sabbath. Sabbath is a word that comes from the Hebrew word to rest, Shabbat is uh, the basic way of the form of the word. It means to rest. And so God sets aside this specific time. He consecrates it for a special purpose. And then later on, in his covenant with Israel, God actually instructs Israel to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. God has set it aside as holy, and then he causes people to remember it and to observe it, to keep it as holy, to continue to set aside this day for its special purpose. This is so important that it gets included in the Ten Commandments. Like it's not just a sidebar issue, but it becomes so central 
to God's relationship with his people, it's so important. He says, hey, I want this to be included in this most fundamental aspect of how Israel understands themselves. It's one of the foundational expectations of God's covenant. It's, the, it's one way that Israel expresses its loyalty to Yahweh is by keeping and marking this specific day. So through Sabbath keeping, Israel's week, its rhythm of work and rest is both shaped by God and witnesses to God. It's shaped by God and witnesses to him. Israel will work for six days, but on the seventh day, it will be a Sabbath, a day of sacred observance, a day of rest for the Lord. It will serve really for them as a reminder that God created everything, that he sustains everything, and that he rules over everything. That they'll work into their week, into their observance of time, a weekly reminder that they are not in control. That life is not fully dependent upon them, but instead it's God who made everything. It's God who sustains everything. It's God who rules over everything. It becomes a part of who they are as a people. We go on and we see before God delivers Israel and establishes this covenant with them, he actually begins to set up a calendar for them even before this becomes part of the covenant. He tells them that the, the month of the Exodus will be the first month of their year. It says that on this day when I bring you up out of Egypt, this will start a whole new year for you. This will be the beginning of time, the beginning of the year. And he goes on to set up the first holidays, the Passover and what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Israelites are about to be rescued. They're about to be delivered up out of Egypt, out of slavery. And this act of salvation is the beginning of an entirely new kind of life for them. And the exodus is so drastic that it will change how Israel marks and keeps time. Now, I'm going to rescue you, and this is going to be the beginning of a new year. And the, your whole way of understanding the calendar is now going to be shaped differently because God has acted in time and is now setting aside and consecrating time in a different way. So as the Old Testament continues, Israel's calendar begins to be shaped around God's activity and around their major agricultural events, particularly because one of the ways that God continues to show himself to them, where he continues to show himself faithful, is by continuing to provide harvest, by continuing to provide food that sustains life. So they begin to mark time around God's activity and around God's provision. And so, as they mark time that way, their worship becomes marked that way. Their worship corresponds with the remembrance of God's faithfulness, with God's historical rescuing, the way he's acted in time, and around God's continual provision for them, the way he continues to make it possible for them to sustain life within the land. So that's kind of a, a real basic sort of way in which the calendar develops. But I want to stop and see if there are a few questions um, before I talk uh, any more about real specifics from that. I'll kind of break every once in a while and say, okay, what do you think about this? Comments, thoughts, questions, perspectives that you'd add um, to Israel's sort of view of time? Not everybody at once. Karen. Um, it's, it's so 
that? Yeah. So the question that she asks is like hearing all of this about the way in which Israel observes times and marks times, sort of the beauty and the intentionality behind it, uh, why don't we as Christians do the same thing? And it's sort of a, a, a both a yes and no. <laughs> so on the one hand, we do. Um, throughout history, the church has followed its own calendar that comes up out of this same idea um, of a way of marking time around God's historical acts, but particularly uh, is what Israel sort of did with their calendar is they marked it around really the story of Israel, right? As we see as we go into the Jewish calendar, much of the calendar reenacts their story as an entire nation. And what the church did was actually kind of retold this, the calendar around the story of Jesus. I've seen Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. The church calendar then becomes shaped around Jesus' life as a way of marking time, particularly in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus did in fulfillment of all that came before. So that was one thing that we saw that change. We'll talk about that kind of a little bit toward the end of what happened, some of those transitions, and Glenn might add some things again next week. Uh, The second thing, of course, that impacted this greatly was this cross of the gospel from the Jewish community into Gentile community into non-Jewish sort of spaces. And what does it now mean for this group of people who are now multi-ethnic? What does it mean for this new community to mark time? Uh, And we begin to see that particularly out of that relationship of going, okay, we have this way of marking time in a Jewish world. We have this way of marking time in a Gentile world as we are learning how to live together in a new way because of Jesus. How do we now mark time together? Um, Which is a lot of the reasons why you see this kind of blend of both some Jewish influences and some Gentile influences in the calendar but the focus and center point on Jesus, because Jesus is now the one who's brought these two groups together. He, uh, as we talked about last week in the sermon, um, the dividing wall of hostility between these two groups, Jesus is the one that's removed. He's removed that, so they're organizing their life together around him. And we see that actually starting to take place a little bit in the scriptures, too. We see some little transitions already happening uh, before we get into the long development of the Christian calendar. It took several centuries before it all got worked out. Anybody else? Any other comments? Yeah, help me with your name. Alex. Alex. Ah, uh, that's a great, so the question is, do we think that the nature view of time changed at all between the, between, uh, from the creation uh, after the fall till now? Uh, I, I don't think so, um, in the sense that, you know, so much of what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, being set up in terms of time just continue on, particularly in the story and how we understand um, time. Sabbath is clearly sort of grounded in creation itself and continues in observance after the fall with, uh, with, with God's covenant. Um, so I think that there is at least some continuity there um, between the two of them in terms of this world that God set up in Genesis 1 and 2 um, has been in many ways fractured and turned upside down 
Um, and yet, it's still a place that um, is inhabitable for people. And there's still time. There's still the sun and the moon and the stars marking so, you know, times and seasons and those things. I may have misunderstood it too. <laughs> but so you believe that, that time is time and it's been exactly the same the whole way through? So that we're at what, six thousand years or is it four thousand years? Oh, in 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 terms of Yeah. Yeah, so, so that, that's, that becomes a question more about dating than it becomes a question about time on, on, like on a general level, dating on a more specific level, uh, which gets into all sorts of nuances and, <laughs> and those things that we'll have, to, we'll have to set up another Sunday school class for that conversation because <laughs> that may take us four weeks itself. Yeah. Help me with your name again. George. George. It's a great question. The question was, uh, as part of the Exodus um, setting up a new calendar, is that part of also purging Israel a little bit from Egyptian influence? And then secondarily, do we see any sort of continuation of Egyptian influence uh, in terms of uh, Israel's calendar? Uh, I'd say, first of all, I know very little about Egypt's calendar. Um, so I don't know for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, we do see throughout the ancient Near East, because it's primarily agrarian societies around that time, that you do see in most religious systems of the ancient world a calendar that's some way connected with the agricultural cycle of that region um, and, and a recognition of whatever gods that they're worshiping providing harvest. In fact, a lot of... Um, the pantheons of a lot of the other ancient world, like ancient kingdoms around Israel, very much have things like a rain god, um, where there's this very clear, if there's not rain, there's going to be famine. And so we need to appease the rain god in order to make sure that our agricultural cycles continue. So you do see continuation of agricultural influences inside the calendar, though you have this other layer of these historical acts of Yahweh that are also included, um, sometimes corresponding to one another and sometimes different. Yeah, help me with your name. Diana. Diana, hi. Mm hmm. Yeah.
yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it really is uh, very much kind of a, still today even a part of Jewish culture. Uh, if you've, anybody spent any time in Israel? Um, so if you've been in Israel on Friday, um, which Friday is the, kind of the last day of the week, you'll notice like shops will start closing noon, one o'clock, two o'clock. Everybody's doing all of their preparations that they can to uh, make the meal for the Shabbat meal so that by sundown, all of the work is done, the candles can be lit, and they can enter into Sabbath. Uh, so it's very much still a part of particularly observant Jews' life um, of observing time in that same way. Um, I think one of the beautiful parts about that when I've thought about that idea is, you know, you're beginning the day in rest. Um, that you're, you're, you're marking time with, I'm beginning in rest, I'm beginning in this place of being with family, um, and particularly in that culture, there's a lot of you're gathered around a table together, the, you know, in starting that new day in a place of worship and rest together. All right, got time for one more, and then we're going to do a quick discussion around the room, and then we'll talk some specifics about that calendar. I saw another hand somewhere. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it is a very different kind of mindset and view of time. All right, so let's do a quick discussion. Um, we talked a little bit about what calendars kind of impact your life the most in terms of a year, um, but take for a few moments to talk about how, you, how your week is organized. Um, grab a couple of, what makes the biggest difference in your week and how a specific week is organized for you? So we talked last time about your year. What makes the biggest difference for your week? So what kind of patterns or rhythms do you follow? Does your family follow? Do your friends follow? We'll take about two or three minutes to talk about that together. All right. Let's pull it back in. So Israel really orders its week around the Sabbath. That becomes the primary way of kind of marking its, its given week. Uh, but its, its yearly calendar uh, focuses on three pilgrimage festivals in Jerusalem. So three times a year where there's a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, the first includes the two events that we just mentioned, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So both of these feasts are connected to Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Uh, that becomes, as we mentioned before, kind of the starting point of their calendar. So the Passover serves as a reminder that on the night that the firstborn of Egypt died, the Israelites were spared um, as the Lord passed over their blood-marked houses. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, then, was a seven-day celebration that recalled that the Israelites left Egypt so quickly that their bread didn't have time to rise. 
and yet they still had bread to eat for those seven days. So they're very clearly sort of marking this time of Passover is this night, and um, this you know, horrible night in which they were graciously delivered. Um, and then following with that, this remembrance of their exodus happened so quickly um, that they have this feast of unleavened bread. But it's deeply, deeply tied to the exodus, um, as is so much of um, ancient Israelite understanding. I mean, the exodus is key to what it means to be an Israelite, um, is this recognition that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This becomes kind of that core uh, understanding. So we find that as being the first festival. The second festival is Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks. It occurs seven weeks after the Passover. Uh, So seven weeks later, and it marked both the beginning of the wheat harvest, so we see this agricultural sort of connection, but it also marked the giving of Torah at Mount Sinai. So it becomes connected not only with God beginning to provide wheat, but more particularly also God giving the law. Uh, And Pastor Glenn's going to talk about this a little bit today in the sermon, and this different understanding of the law sometimes that we often have. Uh, that the law for Israelites was considered a great grace. It was considered a gift. It was considered something to be celebrated. Uh, that's why we have all of these psalms that talk about the law in these very like, loving and affectionate kinds of ways of recognizing not only has God rescued us out of slavery, not only has he freed us, but now he's given us his covenant so that we might learn how to live as freed people. So we might live in this kind of way in right relationship with him and one another. So Israel really gathers at this festival to thank God for providing food and to thank God for providing the law. We find those two connections. Hence in the scriptures, though, also then you'll find a real correspondence between the giving of the law at Sinai on Pentecost and then what's given later on Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost as well. And we see a real connection between the two of these things. Uh, one example you'll find even in the texts themselves. Anyone remember what happened after God gave the law at Mount Sinai? Moses came down the mountain and what happened? They were in, engaged in worship of other gods, right? And how many Israelites passed away that day? This is 3,000 Israelites died as consequence of their sin. Okay, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls, Peter stands up, and he proclaims the gospel, and how many people entered the church that day? 3,000. There's no coincidence that we've got those numbers corresponding with one another. The scriptures are very intentional in the New Testament of connecting these two events with one another. So the final festival that we find in Israel's calendar is the uh, festival of tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And it remembers the 40 years that the Israelites wandered in the desert, living in tents or booths, and celebrates the final harvest of the season. So it remembers both this time in the wilderness, um, but also recognizes the final gathering of the year's grain and grapes. So those two, again, are connected with one another. Um, and for the Israelites, oftentimes we, we, the, we see in the text uh, kind of a dual perspective of the time of the wilderness. Uh, in many ways, the text at the very beginning clearly shows that this time is a time of consequence for the rebellion against God. And yet later on, sometimes the prophets will, set, will call back to the time of the wilderness 
and we'll say, wouldn't it be better if we were back in the wilderness? It was in the wilderness that God provided us manna. It was in the wilderness that we were dependent upon following God in that sense. And was not our devotion at that time even better than our devotion is now? And so we see a little bit of kind of dual perspective sometimes on that period of time. Uh, In between Pentecost and Booth, so in between those two festivals, is actually another really important day in the Jewish calendar. It's known as Yom Kippur, um, or Day of Atonement. Um, And in this particular day, this day is highlighted by an annual ritual during which Israel's priests would offer sacrifice to cleanse the temple of sin. Uh, that, were, that was the sin that was collected during the past year. So there was a sense in Israel's sacrificial system that as they brought sacrifices and as they uh, offered sacrifices to the Lord and forgiveness came, that sin actually became kind of transferred or connected to the temple itself. Uh, it connected the temple and, and connected to the priesthood. And so there would be a, day, a yearly sort of cleansing of the temple um, in which the sins of the community would then be transferred onto a goat and sent off into the wilderness. Um, so you have this very kind of clear moment um, of another day uh, of a sacrifice to cleanse the temple. And there's one other, the other piece that we see kind of within Israel's calendar is that every seventh year it was actually considered a sabbatical year, and every 50th year was, was uh, decided to be a year of jubilee. So what happened in these particular years, that in a sabbatical year, so every seven years, what the scriptures instructed was that all debts were supposed to be canceled. Now, every seven years, debts would be canceled. Those who had sold themselves into slavery, uh, oftentimes what we find in the ancient world, uh, slavery at times is forced slavery, involuntary slavery, but oftentimes it's, it's more voluntary slavery in sense of... Uh, Voluntary, I use that word very loosely, um, in the sense that somebody has ended up in a financial situation where they, um, they commit themselves to someone else, so they've given whatever resources that they need, and in return they have to serve for so many years. Um, so they have that kind of connection. So it's not an, an unending sense of slavery, but a, uh, a servanthood or servitude that has a time gap on it. But every seven years, that was supposed to be set free, and the land was supposed to be given rest. The people were only supposed to harvest what grew naturally in the land. So rather than cultivating and seeding and plowing and doing all of those things, they're simply supposed to let the land rest and eat simply what grows naturally on the land. And in the year of Jubilee, all land is actually returned to its original owners. So if there's been any transfer of land from one family to another, that land is supposed to be returned, uh, which reflects Israel's belief that the land was not actually theirs to buy and sell. It reflects the sense that the land actually belongs to Yahweh. The land does not belong to people, but the land belongs to God, and he has given a certain allotment to each tribe and family as an inheritance to provide for every generation. So if one generation had to sell the land due to financial hardship, it eventually would return to subsequent generations. So there wasn't this sort of unending cycle of poverty and marginalization that can happen for people. Uh, But both of those actually end up focusing Israel's observance on the environment and on economics, on fair practices and on the poor. 
uh, become kind of built into their calendar system. Well, that's, that's the kind of the challenge of these texts. So the question was, do we see them actually practicing these things? Like anywhere in the text, do we, do we see where they say that they actually did this? And we don't. Um, so we see that the calendar is very much set up that this is supposed to be part of Israel's life. Um, and yet, we struggle to actually find about whether or not they lived this out. So we see, again, the ideal being placed in the calendar as this focus on these particular things. Um, and yet Israel often struggled, particularly in these areas, right? The prophets are continually waging against, or raging against Israel for its treatment of the poor. Um, if you look through the prophets, I mean, over and over and over again, they're continually being chastised for the way they treat the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. Yes. No, what you, I think the specific question was about the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee. So the, the, the yearly calendar, we see that over and over and over again, but the seven year and the 50 year, particularly the 50 year, we don't see actually in the text anywhere. Yeah, that's probably the closest sort of like, and of course that's in Genesis, so before all the calendar gets set up, um, but in terms of actually seeing the place where the land was, le- was left fallow for an entire year, or that we see this economic restitution happening on the 50th year, we don't necessarily see a place in the text, in the narratives, where we see that this was actually practiced, though it was set up and supposed to be the ideal which they followed. Any other questions on that, on that aspect? So what we see, though, kind of overall, is that God constructs Israel's week around the Sabbath and their, and their year around these historical acts upon this remembrance of what God has done in history, his agricultural provision, and if we include the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee, his desire for justice. That all of these things get caught up in the way that they mark time. Uh, So the calendar should guide Israel's corporate expressions of worship. Israel's weekly gathering happens on the Sabbath in response, remembrance, and anticipation of God's work. And at their core, Israel's annual festivals, these festivals that we just talked about, are worship gatherings. Israel gathers together to demonstrate their gratitude and their loyalty. Its holy days are religious celebrations. That it's inherent in who they are as people that holidays are religious celebrations, they're holy days. And then the, Sabbath, the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee are, of course, deeply connected to creation, care, and to justice. Uh, but these things themselves are seen as expressions of the community's devotion to and trust in Yahweh. It's seen like we can trust the Lord, we can trust Him and we can follow in his ways and rhythms and show the world what he's like through the way that we gather together, the way that we mark time, and the practices that we connect with that. Uh, and interestingly, then, what happens is, is we see this reflected in the New Testament, of course. Uh, Jesus and the earliest Christians were all Jewish. Jesus is a first-century Jewish man, um, this incarnate Son of God, a first century Jew. 
And so their calendar, the rhythms of life, is this is what they followed. They were meeting in places of worship like the synagogue or a temple on Saturdays to observe Sabbath. That's where we find Jesus' rhythm. When Jesus is arrested, convicted, and crucified, he and his followers are in Jerusalem for Passover and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why they've gone there. It's a pilgrimage festival. They've gone there for that celebration. When the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus' followers, they're gathered together for Pentecost. That's why all those other people are there um, to hear Peter's proclamation. And yet... What we see early in the life of the church is that this calendar takes on additional significance because of Jesus. That somehow what God has done in and through Jesus has deeply impacted this calendar. For example, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The early church is already starting to reinterpret the calendar a little bit in light of Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is coming fulfillment of all that ha- has happened, and yet also we see these new meanings and new significance beginning to take place. Uh, the other aspect of this is that we see that the first Christians, particularly those who were Jewish, observed Sabbath on Saturday but they also met together on Sunday to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and to eat the Lord's Supper together. They were doing both those who were Jewish, gathering on Saturday for Sabbath, and then meeting on Sunday to celebrate resurrection. And as we see time goes on, it's on Sunday that it's both the Jewish and Gentile communities coming together to celebrate the Lord's Day, the day he was resurrected, and to share in that, fest- and to share in that feast together. So in Acts, we read that on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Remember, the first day of the week in a Jewish worldview is Sunday, not Monday. So they came together on Sunday um, to break bread, which is likely a reference to communion. And then Paul spoke to the people, and he intended to leave the next day, but kept on talking till midnight. Glenn's going to do that today. (laughs) He's just going to keep on talking, so we're just going to stay and tarry. Um, so early on, like Christians began to refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. It's the day of resurrection. It's the day that Jesus defeated sin and evil and death. Therefore, it's also the day that God's new creation began. We see that Jesus is the first fruits of God's new creation, that a new creation is happening on that day as Jesus comes from the grave. Jesus is the first fruits of God's new world, and his resurrection is a sign of things to come. So God began creating the world on a Sunday, and he began recreating the world on a Sunday. We see that deep connection. So over time, the Sunday gathering becomes more significant than the Sabbath gathering for the church. And the church begins to actually even debate whether or not they should still keep Sabbath. Like what that should actually look like. Uh, Those debates actually continued, and they were finally addressed by the church's councils these gatherings of Christian leaders from all over the world. And the the Council of Laodicea in 363 AD officially encouraged Christians to rest on Sunday rather than on the Sabbath. And you do find Christians who do both, rest on Saturday and the observance of the Sabbath and gather together uh, for Sunday. But those conversations continue. And they continue into the Protestant Reformation. They continue into today. Actually, some churches like Seventh-day Adventists still meet on Saturday in recognition of that. Uh, But most Christians throughout time and across the globe 
gathered for worship on Sundays in response to the resurrection. We say that the resurrection is what changes everything, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection in anticipation of our own. So the Christian week becomes shaped by the resurrection and witnesses to the resurrection. Like the exodus for Israel, uh, the resurrection changes how we mark and observe time. That becomes where the exodus was Israel's kind of primary way of understanding themselves. For Christians, it's the resurrection that becomes that primary way of understanding ourselves and our life together. Um, So over the course of time, then the rest of the Christian year gradually begins to be shaped by Jesus' story, by the rest of the story. So as we're going to talk about next week, we'll talk about Advent, this anticipation for the coming of Jesus, Christmas, the celebration of Jesus' birth, Epiphany, the celebration of Jesus being revealed not only as the Messiah of Israel, but the Savior of the world. And in the season of Lent, Jesus' time of uh, leading up to his crucifixion, Holy Week, remember Jesus' arrest and his betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial. Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection, kicks off this 50-day feast of celebrating that Jesus has been raised again, and then we come, we celebrate Pentecost, and we go through our calendar in light of Jesus' story. So the calendar um, shaped Israel's corporate expressions of worship, and it has for the church as well, uh, in the same way that Israel's did for them. So we've got about five more minutes, I think, um, to see if there are any questions kind of about Israel's calendar and how that began to transition. The next week, Pastor Glenn will dive more into the Christian calendar itself and how, we, how it shapes our worship, how it shapes our worship here downtown, um, and some practices that we can engage in our homes with our friends and our family um, on how that might shape our observance of time together. Questions, comments? Yeah. It do. We do find that sort of connection. The question was, I repeat the question for the podcast, if anybody's wondering. Um, so the question is about a lunar calendar, if that's still impacted there. Yes, and we still see that a lunar calendar being impacted um, in the Jewish calendar. Yep. Yeah, Tony? Yes, they will be on podcast. Brian, once they get it all, Brian or Britt will send out an email giving you the link to it. Uh, who will send it out? Jacob will send it out. Jacob and I haven't met yet. Hi, Jacob. Um, it'll get sent out. But you can also just go to iTunes to go to podcasts and search New Life Downtown Sunday School. And you can find a, a bunch of backlogs there, too. Awesome. I probably should have said that beforehand. Sorry for those of you who you know, like killed your hands writing. Right, any other comments? Yeah. Yeah. That, so the question is the, the kind of the relationship between uh, pagan expressions of calendar and Christian expressions of calendar and how those things uh, get overlapped and which one influences which. 
uh, and all of those things, which I will probably leave most of that for Pastor Glenn next week. Um, <laughs> but there, there's this, it's this huge debate um, because we see on the one hand um, this beautiful expression of the gospel crossing culture, right? And God always meets us where we're at, right? I mean, that's the beauty of who our God is, is that he meets us in particular times, in particular places, in particular ways that we understand, and then takes things and fills them with all new meaning and significance and wonder and beauty. And so when we see the gospel crossing cultures, we can see in one hand, thinking about the way that the gospel penetrates that culture and changes things in beautiful ways. It doesn't mean that it just completely eliminates them, but takes things and pronounces a profound and deeper and truer meaning to those things than maybe what they knew before. Uh, also, I think we see that the church is trying to figure out what does it mean to live this life in this particular culture? How is it that we meet people where they are and call them forward into obedience to Jesus? And so I, I think there's a, a very missional impulse in a lot of those kind of connections that we see as we trace the church calendar and how it develops. There's certainly days that get chosen because they overlap in some ways with Roman holidays. Um, And you have so many people coming from the Gentile Roman world into the church and see those kinds of connections. But also new things get introduced because of the Jewish calendar as well. And yet the heartbeat behind all of it is ordering life around Jesus. Um, Where the church then gets off later on is that we've now, I think, over the course of time, because the Western world, at one point, sort of the majority of the Western world identified themselves in some way as Christian, that that calendar became not only the church's calendar, it became culture's calendar, right? And as the, world became, as the culture became increasingly less Christian, the calendar didn't change all that much. Right? So you now see all of these debates you know, about the calendar and do we say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays? Right? All of these debates that, that come up um, out of all of these modern transitions to things. And I think the question, of course, for us as followers of Jesus is how do we order our lives around Jesus? And not only how do we do it individually, how do we do that together and I think in a very beautiful way, how do we do that not only together here, but with Christians around the world and throughout time? And I think the Christian calendar gives us the best opportunity to do that, to order our lives around Jesus together with other Christians around the world and across time. There's something very beautiful as we leave from here that when we come to the table this morning, we're not only coming to the table together, we're coming to the table on Sunday morning and Christians around the world are doing the same thing. And they've done so for 2,000 years. And there's something very beautiful to ordering our week around that meal. And order our lives around Jesus' life so that we might continue to proclaim the gospel to the world. Amen? All right, one more question and then we'll go. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to definitely kick that one for Glenn for next week. I'll, I'll make sure that he mentions it. We do find that there's a slightly different calendar 
followed by Eastern Christians as opposed to Western Christians. Um, And particularly in the Middle East, you'll find, um, like when I was in Jerusalem in January uh, one year, um, they were preparing the Eastern Orthodox communities in Israel were still getting ready to celebrate Christmas because uh, the calendar is slightly different. And so I'll see if Glenn can touch on that a little bit next week and talking about how that took shape. Jacob? Yes. Yep. So a couple of people who I think would be really, really great and accessible reads. One of them is Robert Weber. He wrote a book called Ancient Future Time. Talks about the church's calendar. Um, and there's another one, uh, a guy named uh, Lawrence Stuckey, S-T-O-O-K-E-Y. And I, I'll make sure we get these included in the, um, uh, in the podcast. He wrote a book called, I think it's Christ Calendar or Christ in the Calendar, um, something along those lines. And um, what was the other one that we've read, Sarah? There's another one that... Now, I don't think Cherry has one specifically on the calendar. Uh, there's another one, too, and I, ca- I can't remember the name of it, but I'll make sure we get that sent out in the email as well. Cool? All right, let me pray for us as we go, all right? Gracious God, thank you that you created time and space and gave us life. Thank you that you uh, have helped us know what it means to order our lives. Thank you that you've acted in time that you consecrate time, and that you invite us to order our lives around you. Um, about who you are and what you've done and what you're doing and what you're going to do. And we find that that itself is a, a grace from you. Uh, a way of helping us to think about our lives that changes us, that transforms us, that helps us to conform to your will, that we might um, live and with depth and beauty and rhythm and nuance and grace, and that you might then use our lives to continue to communicate to the world that you love them, that you sent your son um, to live, to die, and to be raised again, uh, and that we are a people of resurrection whose entire lives have been shaped and reordered by the fact that you have defeated death. And therefore, we live as people with hope. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.